Hi everyone, Will here. Uh, so this episode is going to be a little bit different. Uh, my co-host Max, uh, from whom you'll be hearing for pretty much the rest of the time, uh, has been making a lot of jokes about wanting to do some kind of a long two or three hour avant-garde-esque sort of thing where he just kind of talks by himself and kind of sees what comes out. And then I learned last week that they weren't jokes and I received a two and a half hour audio clip of his, which hence the, uh, the delay here, it actually just took me a while to get through it. Not because it was bad, but just because I was on vacation and being a podcaster is really, really hard. Um, so this episode is sort of reflexive about our methodology, uh, more so than, than I think we usually are even. This podcast, I, I want to just say, it's challenging for people to listen to the very first time. It gets easier, and that's because we sort of just immerse you, the listener, in a conversation that we are having within the framework that we want to teach. So rather than starting from some kind of, you know, 101 sort of principles and building from there, instead, the way that we've kind of done it is we do different topics. So a kind of a non-identical repetition of the same theme and the same kind of shape of argument. Whereas, you know, I mean, we are an MMT podcast. There are a lot of what I guess you could call identical repetition, you know, like all of the MMT 101 kinds of things. And that stuff is all really, really useful. I mean, you know, I, it, it helps to go through the T-charts to, to do all of that kind of stuff. For our purposes and what we are trying to do with this podcast, which is much more about trying to reckon with the implications of MMT for the left in this kind of particular moment, and additionally try to create more of us <laughs> from people who are not all of the same disciplinary background. Uh, we have been doing this kind of method of, of analogy, so analogical repetition or non-identical repetition. Um, and in this particular episode, that is what Max really goes through a lot, and he also has some commentary on that. But I just wanted to flag for, for our listeners that you saw the duration length. It's a more experimental one. It's kind of a weird one, but I'm honestly unbelievably proud of, of what Max recorded, uh, and it feels silly me even doing an introduction for it because I think it's so, um, there's just so much there. It's kind of the whole thing, um, analogically, of course, because we do the whole thing again and again and again, except it's different each time. Um, but yeah, so without further ado. Yeah, shallow words breed nothing new. Shallow words breed nothing Good evening, Superstructure listeners. It's probably not evening where you are, but um, I've been reading too much Hegel recently anyway, so uh, that's apparently how time works. Um, sorry, my brain is broken. Um, so this is 
kind of a different thing. Will isn't here. Uh, rest in peace, Will Beeman. But um, I am going just to be talking with all of you in a bit of a performative way, in a way that I think is supposed to uh, reproduce our method while also trying to articulate over and over and over again the way Will and I approach questions of political economy and culture and philosophy and everything and every non-thing. Um, and I suppose a good place to start with this is actually to come circle back to that question of time that I brought up at the very beginning, which is to say that uh, this is going to be long. And it's going to be long for a reason. I think duration has been a topic in media studies for a while. And so there, there's, in many ways, there's nothing really new about sort of pushing the boundaries of duration, except here I think what I want to foreground with this, whatever this is, this talk that we're having, um, is the fact that time, you know, time in the Marxian sense means something very specific. Time in the Heideggerian sense means something very specific. And, um, you know, I think... I think was it, it was Nancy Pelosi recently that said time is our most precious commodity. And um, a lot of people made fun of her on Twitter, but it's also like what all of modern philosophy thinks, at least in the West. And, um, and I kind of want to push the boundaries of that um, while also honoring a little bit what is, I think, implied in that formulation of what time is which is to say that time is in a sense for me sort of finite right and this is the the great like heideggerian thing your your, your being is toward death and time is that which enables this sort of future being the, the caretaking that we do for each other and for ourselves but um it's it's one that is sort of always already going to end and and you know that's that's probably gonna refract what a lot of people understand to be the the sort of nature of life right it's life is precious and life is precious every individual life is precious um but time is not reducible to me or you or a sort of amalgamation of me or you right a sort of uh, uh if you will a sort of uh, aggregation of spirit which would be the sort of hegelian sense of history um and so what that means is that our relationship right now you and me on this audio recording, and forgive me if this has gotten a bit ASMR already, um, is one, is a relationship that is reproducible in the sense that when I turn off this recording and 
export it and then make Will uh, edit it. If society is able to provide and produce the resources and infrastructures that can cache and store this wonderfully special podcast experience in memory, um, on hard drives, in fancy books that are transcribed by monks because I'm so important, um, then there isn't a temporal constraint on my words today, right? That's the beauty of of words, of writing, of superstructure. It they they don't die; they just change. And so, starting from that premise, I, I wanted to do what I, I think I've called here uh, in the title. I wanted to I want to scale the cascade with you, and what I mean by that is I want to just go up and down this methodological structure and really articulate, not in the same way every time, but in different ways, what it is we're trying to get at with this project. And hopefully in the act of descending, in the act of climbing, this cascade pyramid, um, which I'm going to talk more about in spatial elements. Um, there will be a sort of mimetic teaching that allows you and I to connect in a way that we haven't before or that you haven't before. And so that is sort of out front my hope for uh this this project here that i'm embarking on with you and i hope you enjoy it and uh you know stay along for as long as you want pop in and out fall asleep to it whatever you do with podcasts um i usually personally tend to set a 30 minute timer and fall asleep 12 minutes after the podcast begins and do this every night. And finally, after a week, I'm able to listen to one podcast um, because my brain is sort of a podcast, which I suppose is an odd thought. Um, anyway, so I kind of wanted to do this in a little bit of a quirky way. Um, one of the themes on this podcast has been ecofascism, which is something that's important to me as far as my work and my thinking on on anti-fascist aesthetics as well as the intersection of political economy uh, monetary theory monetary policy um, philosophy and uh, the future which is incredibly important to me for I'm sure the reasons that it's incredibly important to you and what that means for this podcast is I am going to use uh, the sort of schematic of Avengers Infinity War to to scale this cascade with you. And that's kind of an odd thing to do, I, I admit. But 
with it, I really am intending to actually make a methodological point here as well that I, I don't think Will and I have quite fleshed out yet, which is that inherent in our understanding of superstructure and what we begin to call analogical critique, which I'm going to talk more about, believe me, there's plenty of time, um, is the sort of surplus that gets generated through the coming together of what are imagined to be unrelated. Um, the belonging together of the strange, which is uh, word for word a quote from uh, Elliot R. Wolfson, who is a scholar of Heidegger and Kabbalistic thought. Um, and the reason why I pick Avengers Infinity War as a schematic to get at the questions that I want to get at here and ones that hopefully will refract what, how Will and I approach this broader project is because there are six Infinity Stones um, in the Avengers series. And it just so happens that the Infinity Stones are a kind of nexus, if you will, for some of the most important thinking in the history of philosophy. And so if you're not familiar, for example, in, uh, in the Avengers films, there are, the stones are power, space, reality, soul, time, and mind. And these stones and what they refract as stones as history of thought are kind of crucial, right? I mean, if we think about where discourse goes on the left recently, like obviously power being the first one, um, this is central to uh, biopolitics and this the sort of relations that we're tracing and critiquing on the left and in the ways that uh, power dynamics are exploitative and these sorts of things I, I think you know not to speak for everyone but I think many of us have been affected if not all of us acutely affected by power dynamics that um, were not structured with sets of uh, boundaries that inhibit the possibility or at least the risk of types of exploitation and um, and trauma. And so that is a crucial, uh, obviously, uh, I'm not saying anything new here, it is crucial for an understanding of political economy and an understanding of a sort of totality and a left totality that aims at transformation and critique. And so the second being space, which I think we're all dealing with right now um, in the sense of COVID has really foregrounded not just pers personal space, but the way space is and space itself and then spaces are built, produced, designed, and structured to produce outcomes and how spaces have logics of outcomes. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of the, you know, some of the, the most interesting 
uh, Marxist inflected critical theory has been around this question. Um, you know, Henri Lefebvre being one, uh, we could go on, but uh, not to spend too much time on this, this singular part. Um, the second is, uh, sorry, the third is reality, which base and superstructure really is a, is an understanding of what encompasses the real versus what encompasses the the sort of ephemeral and understanding and and the marxist understanding of of the base as the real motor of history and political economy and um relation itself uh, the base as the production process which then leaves you you know to be a bit simplistic it leaves the superstructure out of the the causal equation when it comes to things like articulating and transforming the way our resources are produced and mediated and transforming the way relations themselves between humans, between humans and uh, what we would think of traditionally as animals or humans in the environment, right? Not to be to essentialize these terms in any way. Um, and so this question of reality is really a, a crucial and important one. Um, then there is uh, fourth, which is soul. And soul is an interesting one. Um, I think in many ways, the question of soul thing is, is really a theological question and is one that, that I try to think about in the sense of perhaps, you know, it's, it's analogical to spirit or analogical then to uh, consciousness itself, uh, which of course very Hegelian term in itself and one that will come up in its Hegelian sense, uh, I assume in this, in this podcast. And then time, of course, which I spent some, some time thinking about, um, which is, uh, crucial for, for really understanding transformation and, and not to harp, harp on that too much. It, in the way that we've tried to draw out, uh, Fred Lee's approach to circular reproduction and thinking about surplus as the essential uh, problematic of political economy and what agency and what our agency as as people who consider themselves on the left need to be preoccupied with. It's the ways in which the surplus is produced are fundamentally political questions and questions that are up for not just debate, but are up for and, and constantly being rearticulated every day through active decisions, whether they are decisions that are bound by trajectories of thought or are path dependent or decisions that are actively being made by individuals or associations of individuals up and down scales of power, uh, whether they be in so-called private industry and government or uh, even on on this sort of consumptive side of the equation right these are the sorts of questions and that are inherent in this surplus and time is central to how we conceive of transforming society and social relations as such as they are bound up in this surplus and then the last of which which i want to spend some real time reflecting on is mind. Um, this is something that, you know, the concept of mind and of thoughts and of, of an internal world 
that we all participate in through our own internal worlds is something that is uh, really interesting to me personally and one that I think uh, the superstructure lens is uniquely posed to address and, you know, not to, to think totally ahead here, but the question of, of lack and trauma and, and our singular subjectivity being hurt and damaged and not enough to transform our lives. And I think this is a, a crucial aspect of neoliberalism, right? That the bootstrap metaphor, like you can rearticulate your relation to society. And, you know, it's pretty obvious that's not, that's not the case. Um, but I want to get into why I think that's not the case. And so with that, then I want to flesh out this particular question about analogy here. Um, which it, you know, suffice it to say, I'm drawing on a lot of work here that is, will sometimes be named and sometimes not be named. Um, frequent guest, well, not frequent guest, one time guest of the show, Natty from Twitter, who, um, frequently has this refrain, uh, it sucks to become. And I very much, uh, relate to that in the sense that um, this podcast is uh, one big exercise in becoming a sort of endless, unending becoming that ends up producing some product that is some version of myself and, and my thoughts and my analysis. And so where I'm going with this is I'm drawing on a lot of work, I, notably and most notably for some of you who maybe know me more personally, I'm drawing on the work of Scott Ferguson, who wrote a book called Declarations of Dependence, um, and thinking, trying to think through the history of modernity and aesthetics through the MMT lens as opposed to the Marxist critical theory lens, the sort of MMT critical theory lens. And, you know, it, a big part of my work has been attempting through conversations with, with Scott and others like Will and, and others in the Modern Money Network at really taking what Scott did, which on its own terms is really groundbreaking, um, and really taking it to its conclusion in many ways, uh, how I see his work concluding as a political praxis that is not that is not bound by the question and the problematic of an essentialized form of alienation uh, in what we call money. And so thinking with analogy here, I just want to start with, you know, people ask the question, what is money? Right? What is money? And for me, this is the wrong question. Because money, like anything else, is not reducible to an is, right? There's not, it doesn't speak through one voice. That is what is so great about money, right? Money is uh, a multitude, but it's not a multitude 
that is incoherent, right? And this is seemingly a paradox. It recalls the classic Plato-Aristotle paradox of, you know, form and and particular and and essence and blah, blah, blah. You know, we could, being and beings, we could talk about this forever. Um, but this is the central, like, problem of, I think, philosophy in general. Um, Adorno certainly thought so, which is how do you reconcile what is perceived to be irreconcilable, right? That something is unique, but it is also universal. And there are many different ways that people have attempted to spin this yarn. Um, But my problem with this question of what is money, who is Max, who are you, is that we are not one thing, right? We are not one unity, one noun. Um, We are a lot of things. But that's not like a disintegrating sort of postmodern perspectivalist vision that I'm speaking with here. I, I think MMT provides a window into a different kind of vision, um, a sort of analogical universality. And this is this recalls medieval thought. It also like dabbles in some uh some modern thought, though the framing would be different, but which is to say, right, money, you know, people often say money is public and it is public, but it's also a relation of publicness. And what I mean by that is banks create money too, and banks aren't the same as the Treasury or the Fed or Congress, right? Of course not. So banks are public too, but they're not public in the same way as Congress is public or as like you and I are situated as a public. Um, And so what I'm trying to get at here is that being as univocal am, are, is, is fundamentally a dead end for, um, for MMT and for the left, in my opinion, which is a, which is a big claim. And, um, I don't shy away from big claims and, you know, you can critique me for that if you'd like, uh, however, I, what I want to say is when I'm making big claims, I'm always making them as analogies. And that's not meant to, to, I'm not obfuscating in that sense, right? I'm not trying to say that, oh, well, I said something and it's wrong and therefore it, but ha, huh, it's gotcha. It's not totally wrong, right? It's an analogy and analogy is what right, what's right. Um, but if you squint and you think about what we all are and i and i mean we in the sense of like you know in this sense a humanistic we right a sense of uh human beings 
we are all variously wrong. But, you know, not totally. <laughs> um, and we're all variously right. But again, not not totally and not in a totalized way. And so I want to avoid here totalizing thinking. And so to return to the question, like, what is money is, is money is a lot of things. Money is like credit and debt, right? It is like credit and debt, but it's not the same as credit and debt without a U.S. dollar being the medium of credit and debt, right? In some sense of like primordial credit and debt, where it is a, a verbal contract, where I say, hey, I owe you one, or um, an unarticulated contract in the sense that um, when you're born, your mom owes you something, your dad owes you something, society owes you something, not to reify family, you know, this sort of sense of nuclear family community owes you something and in return you owe something to community that's money in a way but it is not the u.s dollar right money is like that um gold a gold coin is money but not fully it's like money right as money gold functions as a medium for relations of credit and debt throughout history that doesn't mean money is gold reducible to gold essentialized in gold that doesn't mean that value in any metalist sense is gold this is all pretty obvious right we have we have a credit theory of money and a debt theory of money and then variously a sort of legal theory of money money is a creature of law um and you know is a creature of the state to use uh knop's term and so what i'm trying to get at here is that analogy this as or is like is is potent it's a potent framework because what ends up happening is if we take it beyond money in a in a narrow sense where i pick up this bale of wheat right or i don't even know if wheat comes in bales but um bushel of wheat that's the one i think hey i don't know whatever well i won't cut that because duration but um if i pick up some wheat what is wheat right well okay it's one thing to say wheat is this plant that makes bread and you know narrowly you'd, you'd be right but also like wheat is not those words right there's a there's a mediating function in this linguistic process and so wheat isn't anything it's this big refraction of linguistic associations and significations so when I say wheat, you think of some ideal form or essence of wheat through experience, through learning, through being taught, being thrown into a world in which wheat signifies this, this 
thing that does a thing that's related to eating. Um, I'm not a baker. I have friends who are bakers, but, um, so I'm not really sure what wheat does, but, um, from there we start to really see the essence of like what, what Heidegger calls like significance, um, and signification, which is there's no, like from the outset, this seems pretty obvious, right? Like language is a, is a sort of persistent thing here. Um, and language is then ontological in a sense, right? There, there were, there have been forms of communicating complex ideas in human interaction since whatever the beginning of time is, which I, I tend to like to think there, there's no beginning in some, uh, kind of big bang sense. And maybe we'll, maybe I'll talk about that more when we talk about space, but what I mean in to say in that is that from the outset, the is 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 functioning here as an is li- as it is like as an as, and so is the word wheat, and so is our comprehending process, and this thrownness into mediation from the very outset is kind of like a problem for for Marxists. You know, I'm just reading the German ideology this week and Marx and Engels call intercourse the real language of men. And, you know, this is his, their famous uh, rejection of Hegelian idealism and, and the young Hegelians of which Marx was one, which is to say, like, we need to listen to material gravity here. Like, long we've tried to to defy gravity with these sort of emphases on the infinities of thoughts and phrases and consciousness and spirit, right? As the the sort of human dialog- di- dialectical uh, process of understanding and energy and and surmounting this sort of Kantian gap between subjectivity and thing and Marx is like no no material processes are what matter and the motor is, are is essentially the physical processes of production right it's man digging into a ground it's reproductive processes of in this in, in Marx's conception here of um, heterosexual sexual interactions that are the true language of being because language is a superstructure in in that sense right and so communication and like macro forces of the world aren't linguistic they are material and language is not material right this is this is the key um and so coming full circle on that you know, I just wanted to note that because that's something that is is not new for for philosophers by any means, but it might be new for an MMT community or an MMT curious community who wanting to begin to sort of break some ground into what the intersection of philosophy and MMT implies, right? Um, money is like language, right? It's not language on its own. It's a communicative medium, and it's like language. 
And language itself is like language in the sense that it is a mediated problematic of politics. It's subject to rearticulation, right? Everyone, you know, sort of understands this. If you can immediately think about colonialism or slavery or, um, you know, the, the dias- diaspora studies in general, um, that language is political and it always has been political. But it's not politically reducible to one individual entrant, like thrown entrant into the process of language formation and articulation. Um, you weren't born with the choice to consent to exist and speak and understand. And that is the central problematic, right? We weren't, we didn't consent to being political economic actors here. Um, And that does not mean that consent is not incredibly important, right? Of course. And we can talk about power in the ways we produce structures of consent and boundaries of consent into an eternal problematic of society as such at a, at a latter time. That is to say, though, we don't we aren't born as whole individuals fully in control of ourselves, right? In a state of nature. Like we are not fallen men um, who are given free will over our activities in some Lockean sense. And that's something we did our, talk about in this podcast. Um, the, you know, the problematic imagination, uh, you know, Robinson Crusoe in a Marxist imaginary that really fetishizes an origin that is man in nature or associations of men or people in nature. And if we're really thinking about Adam Smith, that fetishizes indigeneity as some sort of Edenic state of pre-capitalist freedom. Um, And so what sort of credit, debt, primordiality implies, which is essential to what uh, Will and I see as as an MMT vision of what society means and has meant throughout history and into the future is that there's no before things like money. That doesn't mean there's no before the US dollar, right? Obviously. That doesn't mean there's no before uh, digital money. That doesn't mean there's no before gold money or silver money or yakstone money, yapstone, excuse me, um, money. But what that means is, is that there's always this political form of mediating the surplus of collectivity, right? And collectivity produces a surplus. It's a positive thing. You know, I'm sorry if this is uh, really controversial to um, some people who might be listening, but I don't, I, I don't think in my schema of thinking and Will and I schema of thinking and what I think is MMT's schema of thinking is that autonomy is a myth in the sense of state of nature, full consent over one self individually, which is to say that everyone 
will always owe something to someone else. That doesn't mean everyone owes everything again, right? But this is not totalizing logic. This is not full polar extremes in a Hegelian sense, right? It's not, you know, the, the funny meme with like, you know, Elizabeth Warren, you know, she doesn't owe you anything. Well, obviously she does owe us something. She's, a, she's in various way, in various ways as a political representative, as a public figure, as a former law professor, as a human being, as, you know, we could go down the list, right? As someone with more wealth than others, there are plenty of ways in which we all owe each other lots of things, but not everything, right? And that, and it's not total ownership, right? It's not, it's not, I am totally in debt peonage. Again, we're, we're resisting total totalizing logics and binary logics here it is a spectrum of obligation and one that is not flat but is in its nature politically produced at all levels of the agency distributed process and right now uh, a critique of political economy that i would certainly proffer and that we've proffered on the show is that um Though agents of obligation and in power to, to, empowered to fulfill the obligations that are necess- necessary in the sense of ontologically necessary, but also in a socially constructed sense, what is necessary, um, are shitty and are often reactionary and are often in it for themselves, right? The capitalists suck at producing and provisioning forms of equitable distribution of resources, of agency, of all the categories of political economy, um, of, yeah, I mean, essentially of, of value, which is not to say in like hard rejection of classical theories of value or imminent theories of value, but a sort of moral value, which is, again, up for political debate, right? Like those are fights that need to be had. But so that is a very long-winded way of talking about analogical critique, which is fundamentally that we are all thrown into partial relations that are mediated by political processes of rearticulation and reproduction that are not reducible to any polar side of either sovereignty as a univocal force of power or individual agency as a univocal force of consent, right? And that is, that's just messy. It's real hard and messy, but that's the problematic. Like, what do we want to produce? How do we want to go about deciding that how do we want to what in what time scale do we want to produce that how do we want to what are the levers of distributing the productive resources and how do we want to employ the productive resources of society towards achieving that end 
and I mean this from every minuscule, tiny piece of society to the broad things like food, housing, and these sorts of things. And the great thing is, is not any one person has to decide this, right? So it, the burden is not on you or I, it's on all of us. It's not on the president. It's on all of us. And that doesn't mean all of our voices are being heard equally, but that we are in this. We participate, no matter if we want to or not. And participation is, again, analogous. I go buy something at the store. That doesn't mean I am actualizing the totality of the production process, but I am actualizing the payment system. I am actualizing the transportation system and the production of the fresh produce that I'm produce that I'm purchasing. And so this and the analogy sort of ping pong their way up the cascade till we have an entire production process that is being provisioned and always being provisioned sometimes terribly, sometimes provisioned as abandonment purposefully where people starve to death or people are, you know, in the sense provisioned through violence, through cops who do, who are supposed to be doing, you know, who, who essentially end up doing the work of perpetuating historical genocide alongside the work of putting people of, of, you know, so-called keeping us safe, which is a complete fiction, right? I think, obviously, deferring to abolitionist movements here, and this is something where we talk about in um, our previous episode on the COP forum, and then um, with our last episode with Maite Salazar, who knows when this will come out, but um, those episodes are great, and you should check them out. And so, situating from there, like, thinking about a production process as a basically like an an analogy of surplus production and you participate i participate and that's the problematic right we're thrown into this to use a heideggerian term um and there's no way out right there's no outside there's only transformation and rearticulation and that is the pain and the beauty of living and being a political, you know, animal to use a stupid term. Um, and so I wanted to start from there and start it to connect it up to what I've laid out before as these six structures uh, that are based on the Avengers Infinity Stones. But before that, and this is the most wordy prelude, I think. I've ever encountered. I want to say that this cascade that I'm attempting to articulate partially always um, and construct partially always here for you is not a pyramid in the sense of a, you know, an Egyptian pyramid or a little tip at the top that filters down, right, with a with an un- omnipotent eye, a god's eye, if you will. Rather, 
um, it is a sort of inverted pyramid that actually isn't a pyramid, but maybe a circle or concentric circles, thinking like Dante's Inferno, Descent into Hell, you know, just revolving circles of articulating levels and, and scales that lead to a sort of macro vantage point. Um, in, in Dante's case, it's the devil. Um, and, you know, true, you could, you could call political economy the devil, but, you know, um, and, and sort of macro and, and sort of political economy, the devil. But, um, you know, what I kind of want to suggest is that we're really working um, from the bottom up in articulating this macro vision of macro to micro scale, which is a paradox, right? But I kind of like this vision of bottom up, right? Thinking with money as as the base, right? The superstructure as the base <laughs> to use the refrain here and working your way up to the micro relations that we would consider the sort of immediate sensual relationship of, you know, to use the, the, the Marxian construction of like, you know, human physical interaction. And so the way that Money supports that and provides ground for uh, our embodied lives. And, you know, there's an, another phrase, which is Heideggerian. It's a, it's a ground that is not a ground. Um, Abgrund for any German listeners out there. Um, and so... That, I think, is a really, uh, it's a really powerful tool for, and it's one that Will and I leverage here in Superstructure for, for being able to articulate the way infinity is operating as a baseline of inclusion and of a non-scarcity vision of political economy and human relationality. And how infinity permeates the process of relating, which is not to say that any individual relation is infinite, but that it is partially infinite. It is analogically infinite. And as such, it is constructed around and through mechanisms of infinity, through this in infinite process of of linguistic organization and logistics and meaning and conceptions like there's you know there's there's no limit to the amount of words we can have or make up i think twitter uh twitter's evidence of that um and likewise it is infinite in the sense that numbers are infinite and we can count to infinity there is literally no limit and that is, I mean, that's a fundamental anxiety about language and counting that, that Marx uh, has, and Marx has in his writing. 
um, because it's not, you know, fundamentally reducible. And in Hegel too, if we think about what bad infinity implies, um, and, you know, I mean, we could go on and on, but the sort of, to use a, a sort of graphical geometric metaphor, there's this imagination in modernity that infinity is asymptotic, right? It's like an asymptote, which is that it, all as as you get further away from the cartesian point the index the baseline you get closer and closer to the baseline right there's a de- decreasing rate of profit if you will or a um or entropy if you will and so what i want to reject is that fundamental conception which is to say infinity affords that very spatialization in the very sense of our embodied existence and our thrownness into this world that we didn't consent into being thrown into. And, you know, it's pretty obvious in the sense that when I look at something, I don't see it on its own before I think one of it or two of it or I think chair, right? And if I'm a baby, I am constantly making the associations to learn that social process of identification. And before I can do that, it's kind of useless. I can't really do anything. Um, And, you know, I mean, babies are awesome, but, you know, babies are not great at being bosses, (laughs) which... uh, we don't necessarily want bosses, right, in a capitalist sense. But I mean in the sense of babies aren't great at exerting agency and and thinking about boundaries and thinking about the way we socially relate with one another. And I'm really sorry that now I'm, I've realized I've digressed into talking shit about babies. But, you know, um, I got to get the dig into the philosophers who want to retract into an infantile state of non-relation, which, you know, Agamben or Robinson Crusoe, you know, any of them, we can, I'm sure we can think about more of them. Um, And so with that, I think I've tried to articulate what bottom-up MMT implies, which is precisely a bottom that is not a base bottom, but a bottom that is an abstract superstructure that is in, that is where we exert agency at various levels through linguistic and numerical accounting practice. And so with that, I kind of want to dig into the first question here, the first of these stones, which is power. So how do we imagine power operating, right? One of the things that many people say about MMT is that MMT is great. It's descriptive of the economy or of currency, but it has no theory of struggle and power and critique of power. And, you know, sure, at some level, I can see that some MMTers offer visions of description as a sort of way of teaching people 
how the economy works. Now, again, here we are going to, I'm going to caution and say no, MMT is descriptive, is not the full essence of MMT, right? MMT has descriptive features, right? It has descriptive functions. It is a better description than what commodity money is offering, offering, or liberal money is offering, Lockean, Smithian, however we want to formulate it. But MMT is, is never just descriptive. Nothing is ever just descriptive, right? If I say, this is very easy when we start to think about race and, and the history of racialization, but, you know, whiteness is a description. Well, no. No, whiteness is not a, a pure description, right? Whiteness contains multitudes that cohere into a structure of exploitation and racialization. And which is to say, right, whiteness is a dominant mode of oppressing blackness and what is imagined to be coloredness, right, in this in this formulation. Um, and is intrinsic to the Enlightenment, and it's intrinsic to colonialization, and pushes for mining, which, again, we can talk about, you know, malignant politics of reifying money, and think about the way that pushes to mine indigenous land for land for um, copper or silver or gold are centrally structured around imagining money to be wholly in itself a thing that then is a social relation among things, right? To use what the Marxian framework would be. Um, and so MMT is more than descriptive because latent in description is a refraction of politics of power and horizons of possibility for transformation. And so when we say money is not finite, we can afford to employ everyone. That is not merely descriptive. Because nothing is merely descriptive. And that is crucially important because in describing as a linguistic matter, as a matter of language, we are actualizing, partially of course, a political relation of language. That is the first place, one that is rearticulable over time. And I'm gonna keep sort of trying to articulate this theme over and over. So, good. Now, with that, power. What does MMT show us about power? Okay, among many things, among multitudes that necessarily cohere, um, we have this conception of the state of nature, which is crucial for understanding what relations of power and of governance in modernity are imagined to be, right? We have Locke, who imagines state of nature, and then a sort of bundling together of all these men who agree and consent to being governed because... It's really scary to not be governed because you are not able to be protected from the outside world, right? The threat, the force 
is from everywhere rather than from one sovereign. And so, you know, there's a million different ways of formulating that. It's also very, that's the Hobbesian Leviathan as well. Uh, you know, there's alterations, but again, what I just described is like those things. <laughs> very, uh, and I would say in the sense is quite like them. And what that means is, you know, in the Marxian formulation of production as in nature first, which then gets alienated from man and nature and direct material reproduction, is that power is imagined to be dispersed amongst nature from the outset, right? A lion has power over a man or a woman or a non-binary person and that lion is an isolated isolated point of power that nature has endowed it with it has really sharp claws and muscles and all these things and each human being has those attributes too and they exhibit power and force in different ways but the liberal trajectory of state is one in which that ends up getting amalgamated into one centralized point of power. And that is the sovereign, right? The absolutist point of power. And what I would suggest is this, uh, this articulation of power is totally not true. It's like just not, it's a narrative that's completely not true because there's no such thing as a state of nature where each individual is only endowed their individual relations of power that then get alienated and projected up into a Leviathan, into an absolute. That then throughout the trajectory of liberal history and politics then starts to get rounded back down away from the absolute and so we have checks on power and we have democracy and we have men with rights to not being abridged by that power and this whole narrative which should be very familiar to you um all of which is to say that what mmt shows is that currency issuance is crucial to understanding relations of power and how and who has power over producing and reproducing a society and the overlapping relations of societies of varying powers which means that in the state of nature like someone was able to oblige someone else to go kill a boar or something or to go get water and everyone owed everyone everything else because debt and credit are primordial and so it was already an articulation of power, right? And like Adam Smith totally fetishizes indigeneity here be precisely because it's an un it's imagined to be a state of nature, right? Which is to say Smith and Marx imagine like, for example, Native Americans, the guardians of the earth in this sense, of being nature itself, right? Which is obviously super racist um, because Native Americans are people and people are related to nature as nature, like nature, 
but are not the same, right? Are not whatever nature is, are not a tree, right? Are not a groundhog, which is to, not to not to in any way say that a tree and a groundhog is not crucially important to the reproductive ecological process of which humans participate in, but to say that humans are not groundhogs, which is a pretty uh, safe and uh, descriptive, even if we're necessarily thrown in the linguistic process of signification here. So it's not an exact articulation of unity and sameness in that, in or, or again, exact differentiation between humans and groundhogs. And so what MMT shows is then that power is a political problematic at the outset of society, which is forever, rough, roughly speaking, and in all for all intensive purposes. Again, forever being a sense of uh, exact eternality that is very specific. Essentially, credit and debt have existed in, in something like forever for us. Um, and what what this means is that power being centralized, of course, is, is terrible and horrible. It's a horrible way to mediate power relations. It's awful. Um, and there are probably multiple different offer, awful, awful ways we can imagine, right? Um, you know, there are tyrannies of anarchism and totally flattening power to the anyone who has the ability to gaslight someone else into believing them or following their rules or um or essentially believing their certainty about something and this is something that i have personal experience with which um in in many ways i think shows in my work um and so this problematic of power, you know, I don't like Foucault because Foucault is an immanentist, but it's the one that essentially is also the problematic of caretaking and of social reproduction. Um, and so self-care is care for others. Again, emphasis on self here, I am wary of because self is not a thing. It's a social relation, right? Um, <laughs> it's like we are like selves. We are bound up in any sense of self is a linguistically articulated self, which is already produced by a superstructural relation of society as such. Um, not such, but as such, right? Again, we're thinking analogically here as that, which is society. Um, and so I want to suggest here that MMT throws the question of power into stark relief because the question of power then becomes bound to all questions of mediation full stop which again is not a new thought but the framing here is what is important there's no before this question in a very real historical sense right and so it's one thing for marxists to say there's no beyond mediation but what i mean here is that the whole 
framing an intellectual apparatus of MMT and primordial debt and credit here necessitates the implication of power as something we're thrown into and that can never be gotten gotten beyond which essentially renders the question of the mediation of power one of agency and caretaking full stop and so starting with that i kind of want to think of one way in which trying to get out of power is actually a really deeply problematic political practice um which you know one of my faves Giorgio Agamben who he he's not one of my faves he's probably my arch enemy here um he believes that power is a superstructure it's it's essentially a it's it's a potent superstructure for him it's one that essentially is a concentration camp at every level like any space of power is a concentration camp and i i don't say that lightly or with any like i'm not exaggerating here he he literally calls it a concentration camp and what he wants to do is get out of power get back to um essentially a fully destitute and inoperative world whereby power is is rendered not necessary and my problem with that is is that power is intrinsically ontologically unnecessary problematic for our so our, our processes of infinite reproduction to address but if you repress that what happens right it returns repressed to use a psychoanalytic framing and so i think everyone has had the experience of the articulation of equality being a rearticulation of power relations and like anarchy and i and and not the anarchist impulse towards abolition and transformation and i mean that crucially here anarchy as a state of non-power as a as a descriptive <laughs> descriptive this is this is me having to really check myself with my me- method as a as functioning and pretending to be a descriptive i political spatialized construct where in that state i think we've all especially on the left have experienced where power reasserts itself right where a loud and know-it-all white guy asserts his views and totally tramples the perspectives of people in a group right or people appointing themselves leaders of things and the problem is of course is that this relation of power as a structure of mediation is one which we can't get out of and so i'm gonna i'll probably say that over and over again but hopefully in in a non-identical way as as by which to scale up and down this cascade um 
And so what I want to suggest here is that getting out of power into individuated autonomy has a lot of purchase on the left or even a social communal autonomy. But as you know, we've seen for along multiple guises and in multiple ways, this is one that often reifies power in ways that can be harmful and violent. And it's constantly a problem that needs to be renegotiated and rearticulated. And again, this is something that is not new in the sense that I am not an individuated genius of any kind who has come up with this idea whole cloth out of nothing, right? Um, only only money can be created out of nothing. Um, <laughs> but what I want to suggest here is that framing it along the terms of MMT opens up new avenues for linking political agency to this problematic at a wide scale. And essentially power becomes a policy variable, which might feel glib at first. And I understand that because power, Power is not only a policy variable. Again, right? It is partially, analogically a, par- pa- uh, a policy variable, just as it is analogically about individual responsibility of checking one's own power, but not fully, right? Not completely and totalizingly. It's always in this mediated structure of infra- an infrastructural middle relation. And so the quest to get outside of power is a quest for not, is a quest to get outside of mediation. And this is very clear in Marx. Um, We want sensuous immediacy in a Marxian imaginary. Um, And that implies a, essentially getting back to, in a dialectical form, Right, progressing back to the state of nature and a sort of subsistence reproduction system. Um, And from there, my problem is that how do we think about power in that process? And how do we think about mediation in that state, right? Because the want and desire for non-dependence and non-power really, it, on my reading, has what has begotten ultimate power and ultimate concentrated power in a totally paradoxical way. Because when you repress the problematic of power, power itself becomes what is hated and what is ultimately desired. Um, And so I think from there, I want to pivot to a really interesting question here, which is space. And so 
space is a hard one. But I think there's a nice little allegorical framework I can use. Again, allegory being analogy as a framework for pedagogy here um, and, and for teaching, which is that how do we imagine like, you know, obviously we imagine particular spaces and like the university as a space and like the home as a space and a park as a space. Um, but we can also imagine the universe as literally space. Um, and so here I want to think about like the big bang and then the big crunch so we have these two polar sides of what is implied as like the beginning and the end of the universe. And this sort of expanded elastic middle that is everything, right? Everything. Abstractions is a complicated one here, but it's about extension and contraction. And so... Descartes famously thought of uh, space as an extension of subjectivity in a way. Um, and, you know, subjectivity as that which is endowed by God, by a transcendent God for, for Descartes. But um, I kind of want to get at here what it means for there to be an origin and an end of space so there's a very beginning and an end and so there's creation and there's resolution there's extension and there's contraction and what's interesting about this for me anyway is creation is what we do with money right? money creation and Taxation is what we do with money. It's money deletion. Um, likewise, humans are created through reproductive acts and um, they die as embodied figures. But far be it to say that that is all that humans are. Right, Just in the sense that I am creating this bonkers podcast for you. Um, and, you know, I doubt anyone will be listening to it when I die. Um, but it, it's possible that someone could listen to this if that's afforded by society infrastructurally and in many ways. Um, God, the thought of that is very interesting. Um I want, I really wonder what they would think of that. Anyway, that's a that's a mighty digression. But all of that is to say is that um the space by that I inhabit is not reducible to my imminent material existence. Because it can be transcribed into abstractions that I participate in analogically, which is to say memory is 
a storage of parts of people right it's it's a storage of my voice and 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 you know when i write it's a storage of my writing and when i talk well i already said voice but when i am photographed it is a it is a storage of my likeness but again likeness is the key here it's not fully me but it's not fully not me it's mediated partial analogical it's the problematic you know it's it's um it's writing as a problematic it's oral history um it's it's how we how we continue to exist and perpetuate ourselves as a species it's our species being if you will um to really be subversive with the marxian concept um and so when we think about space then there's the there's the analog of like okay so i want to throw out the cosmic sense of space like really just chuck that shit in the garbage here because that's some bullshit um unless we think of a sort of like god creates the universe but not like as a guy but like as the whole itself and like the universe is god and then we participate just like every star participates partially in that creation like there's a way to think about it but what i want to suggest is that this sort of physicalist physiocratic way to to use a loaded economics term um of understanding space is not helpful because space is afforded by money and what i mean by that is is i'm sitting in a room that i pay the university of california for that is the only space that i have been afforded to be mine not whole not fully in any sense right because property is analogical as well as law which is analogical to power structures of social provisioning but it's it possesses the most mineness of anything any other space that exists perhaps maybe my car is second um because i live in california and you need a car which sucks um and so what that means is that this particular space can only exist because it was literally constructed through a payment system and through paying workers and through design and through all sorts of different mechanisms for you know what we do in political economy what society does which is produce itself over time and make decisions how to produce itself and so like you know there are on the roof of this building are tiles that are sort of faux spanish styling and aesthetics and that was a choice that was made by someone who had the agency who was endowed the agency in the production process to make that choice and decide how to organize the surplus 
of production itself. And, you know, they chose Spanish tiles. And they could have they could have made worse choices. I, I do have to say so myself. But um, certainly not the best choice, maybe. I don't know. Again, I, I'm kind of chill about those things. I like a lot of things. Um, and so that's one space, right? And it's like very simply like the state of California paid for this space um, with, you know, federal money. And likewise, you know, for more societies that are less spatially rooted, um, there is the production of space as a sort of fluxus of transients. And that itself is a product of political decisions that are situated as to what is the best way to organize the surplus of production and how to interact with the relations and inputs and outputs of production in the best way. And so, you know, depending on where you lived and throughout history, that changes. Um, And for example, uh, Native Americans were um, less, less static in their, in their production of space and more transient um, for a, a multitude of reasons that are cultural, linguistic, theological, and political economic, like in a, in a, you know, a, a, a Marxist might say, a reductive Marxist might say, well, the material relations, like the Buffalo moved and so blah, 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 or whatever. Um, but it's, it's far more than that because there are choices involved. It is not rote material, um, laws of nature that make people do and act in certain ways right um there are partial agencies and there are necessities and there are you know biological impulses to movement and to action but those are all also necessarily bound in cultural linguistic superstructural uh schemas that was not ever decided by one person, but produced throughout time as, and reproduced throughout time, um, and, and transformed every day, partially throughout time. And so what that means is that like our spaces are, are policy variables. And that's, you know, that that's pretty intuitive when it comes to things like a Green New Deal, where we want outdoor gardens and that, you know, outdoor gardens don't just happen they're not self-moving, self-actualizing. Um, I personally can't produce a whole outdoor garden my, on, my, on my own. Um, there probably is someone who can, but they can't produce it unless they are afforded to produce it via divisions of labor, which have always existed. Um, again, contra marks here. Um, because not any one person can do everything, right? Robinson Crusoe is this image of one person doing everything. And likewise, that is, uh, that is an, uh, a, what I would call a bounded aesthetic imaginary, one that does not really take on the problem of social reproduction. Um, and so from there, you know, what do we want in a Green New Deal? We want awesome spaces that are safe, that are sustainable, that are equitable, that are aesthetically beautiful, that speak to forms of cultural heritage and identity in diverse ways, 
that chart out new cultures and identities in, in, in diverse ways. And that in general, you know, afford a sort of, I mean, this, this, you know, this is again, not a totalizing wish. This is what I want too, right. In some sense. And I, you know, I've talked to people and some people that I agree with also want this, but this is not what everyone wants necessarily. This is something that has to be fought about. Like, what do we want is the fundamental question here. But that is something that we can decide to do through social mechanisms. And those are also up for grabs too. And not that's not to say like all these fights about electoralism versus on the ground fights. Like we don't have to choose, in my opinion, which I understand here, this is an opinion, but all at onceness, I think is an approach that means something to me because that's inclusive. And so power can be won and good things can be done through structures of democracy and voting, however infallible and however fallible and um, inaccessible they are in their current state. They can also be done through direct um, on the ground in this, you know, on the ground being, of course, a, a loaded term here because implying like in the base, like natural where real people are. Um, they can be done through direct activism, direct protests, riots, you know, wherever we call them, burning down police stations, um, talking to people who have been endowed an agency over the political process through shaming people who are terrible and do terrible things. Um, there are many ways in which the transformation can be achieved, which is not to say that it's easy, but that to say that this is the problematic that we are dealing with here. How are we going to transform the world given that we have the infinity sign of relation as the locus of our non-essentialized mediating problematic? And so, you know, that's the question we have. What kind of spaces do we want? That's what we should be calling for. What kind of spaces do we want? Because we can produce them. That's not a question, right? I mean, you know, in a different articulation of the of a political economic society in whole, which it's which is not to say that it's not related or dependent in any way upon um, everything, every everyone else. But for example, China built a hospital in eight days in Wuhan to deal with COVID and the COVID outbreak. Um, I'm not saying that that's what we should do. What I'm saying is, is that shows a horizon of possibility about what's possible. And what also is important in that is to say that um, speed is not necessarily what we are after. I mean, maybe it is. If speed is what we're after, then there are a bunch of a bunch of other negotiations of power relations that we should be thinking with and articulating and i certainly my vision as a as a sort of discursive participant uh my analogical vision as it were which is not the vision of the totality but just what i'm proffering as as participation to try and really spell out this sort of modus of thinking um is that I think there is a necessity to 
moves quickly in some ways, but also there's also a necessity to ensure a movement towards equity and that these things aren't always in opposition, but there are instances in which speed and equity can be things that have to be, relatively speaking, chosen amongst. And so what kind of spaces do we want to build? How do we want to build them? How fast do we want to build them? What kind of houses do we want to build? All these things. Now, sure, there are material and temporal constraints to this process, but we can always afford it. Obviously, this is baseline MMT 101, but this comes back to then the very question metaphysically of spatialization, which is that spatialization is this affordance of the ability to rearticulate space. It is not an endowment of subjectivity that then perceptually, individuatedly creates space, spaces that then are coming into contact, into like dialectical contact with one another. Space is the problematic of affordance itself. And so with that, what I kind of want to pivot to here is this question of reality. And I think this really gets at this sort of aesthetic structures that we're trying to speak to here in this podcast, which are fundamentally in and of themselves bound up in the history of critical theory, of course, because aesthetic theory, you know, I mean, aesthetic theory is the name of one of Adorno's books, Theodore Adorno's books, um, is fundamental to this critique of, you know, the Frankfurt School critique, and then, you know, the Lukács critique of reification. And so what we want to talk about here, and, you know, this is very much, I think we can really call on Scott Ferguson's book here. So let's start with what what the aesthetic is and what it means. So in the Kantian sense, the aesthetic is the sort of sublime beauty of that which essentially is not the production process. And so what does that mean? Well, art is revolutionary because it's not money. We've all heard this. The next episode of Money on the Left, probably out before this comes out, uh, with Alex Williams, i.e. Uh, Veb, um, on Twitter, Tragic Bios Twitter account. Shout out to Alex, friend. Uh, likes to lose, which I have to say is probably the thing, among all the things that I like about Alex. How could you, Alex? If you listen to this, I'll actually really... Uh, like I'll be proud that I buried this so deep in here. Um, there's this problem. There's this imagination that like art is our salvation, and then oh shoot, it turns out art didn't save us, and now art is commodified, and art is Disney, and art is alienation, and ugh, it sucks. Which is true. Disney does suck, but not fully because Disney can also be fun. But it's both all things, you know, it's both like all things. It's analogical to suck. It's analogical to, to awesome. Um, sin and sin and virtue are bound in a problematic with one another, um, for all those Dante fans out there. And so what I kind of want to articulate here 
is that reality is what we imagine it to be, but it it's a relation of imagination. And what I mean by this is not that like, oh, I can think of uh, $10 in my pocket and then it'll be there because that's not true. Um, because, it, I mean, I've, I'll tr- I've tried and it hasn't happened. Uh, so I'm going to keep trying. But, you know, that's really sad because only the, the, the center, this, you know, the only the credit issuing authorities can make that a reality. Um, and I am not sadly a credit issuing authority at the macro scale. I, I'm an authority on the issuance of language because I, I have been chartered as a human to issue English, sometimes German. Um, but that is not something that I can just create, right? I can't create money out of thin air. Um, only the government and its chartered authorities can do that. And so, but I participate in that creation as an input of obligation and debt and owing, and I owe my labor at some level. And, you know, I am owed. So you hear that? You all owe me something, which um, is not as interesting as it sounds because we all owe each other something. Um, or some not thing, um, some non-being, <laughs> to use again the Hegelian term. Sorry, the Hegel references. I, I'm, uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm buried in Hegel and I hate it. Um, so, what this sort of means is that reality is, relatively speaking, a variable of our minds because like I can write a story about reality and what a new reality that you can inhabit, which is uh, somewhere else on a horizon of possibility, right? It's not, it doesn't fully define the horizon of possibility, but I can write a story in which I can imagine $10 and it's in my pocket or I can create an apple in my hand or I can bend fire um, because you know airbender is a thing Um, and so it's it's not bounded quite in the same way reality and this is all baseline like this is is very uninteresting Um, but here's the kicker we all still have to eat so and sleep and love and have space afforded to us and room to be included in our diversity. And so we need money, but there's a then here a reciprocal process by which money can produce imaginaries that offer alternative realities that then can inform the transformation and reproduction of reality, quote unquote, from which we further imagine new realities. And so Scott Ferguson calls this a proto-aesthetic. And so it's an aesthetic before an aesthetic. And so money is the affordance of aesthetic imaginaries. And so I can 
think of an awesome story about a big red dog that's a firefighter um, and get paid for that through, you know, I don't know, maybe a federal theater project to think of the New Deal or like a cultural job guarantee or arts funding or, you know, maybe I, I am going to make an awesome blockbuster movie and I'm paid by a bunch of hedge funds who are terrible agents of the reproduction of culture, but um, who invest in my big red firefighter dog idea and they afford my aesthetic imaginary, which then is watched and imbued into our consciousness, social consciousness, individuated consciousness. And those things are not fractured, but they're, of course, related analogically. They're not the same. They're not fully different. They're something in between. And um, this discursive relation of analogy reproduces the way by which society reproduces the ground that is not grounded, the Abgrund of our cultural production. And so we have this fun circle uh, of, of cultural relation by which reality is up for grabs. Um, and it's up for grabs precisely in its ability to be its own ground for the next round of transformation and abolition and like destruction of some social forms and creation of new ones. And, you know, it, it mirrors this sort of circuit of money creation, money taxation as, a, as an allegorical mechanism. And so, great. We, uh, we, did, we did some thinking now about reality. And the last thing I want to say then is that the works, works of art are very much they're not fractured in a way from the production process, no matter how much like Adorno would want to suggest that this sort of autonomous work of art, which has now fallen, like is the, the high bourgeois work of art is the locus of, of any potential negative articulation of capitalism. This is all bullshit. Um, but the work of art is unique in the sense that it is, and not not to, right, we don't want to reify like the painting or the song as the work of art, but artistic practice, even in all its avant-garde senses, um, what I'm doing today, performing this weird sort of coming together of podcast and political economy, philosophy, Avengers schemas, um, is sort of art too. Ugh, gross. Um, sorry, that's really pretentious. Um, yeah, that was awful. Anyway, so what I want to suggest is that like artistic praxis, practice, <laughs> praxis, um, praxis. Oh God, stop. Um, artistic practice is ev- is also everyday practice, and so affordance and proto. At the proto aesthetic 
is essentially just like money affording all practice. And so that is, even if it's negative affordance, right? Like money affords my walk outside in nature, not only because of like the physical infrastructure that is built, but also because I have the free time to do that because all of my material concerns, quote unquote, material concerns are already afforded by a structure of economic and monetary mediation and political economic transformation and articulation. So that's, um, that's reality, which turns out is also afforded by money, but not completely because we have agency in that process too. Um, even if it's overlapping and varied, and even if the ones with the most agency right now are terrible capitalists who don't care about these values that like inclusion and equity and, and they don't care for the happiness of everyone or of every being we, we can include as well animals and nature itself, whatever happy means to them again. Um, and so now I want to move to a weird one. This is one of the weirder ones, which is soul. What on earth are we going to do with soul? Um, and so here I kind of want to start with this sense of like, individual spirit right and so my soul right like not me my soul um (laughs) is uh is what connects me to the divine right like i have a soul that is beyond my body that's a sort of pretty mainstay understanding uh hegelian spirit you know for better for worse sort of fits into this schema, uh, the the subject as the sort of soul, if you will. Um, this is this is not exactly the case, but it works for the schema a little bit and it's sort of analogical to it. Um, and so what's interesting to me here is I think I kind of want to talk about like damnation and salvation but in the sense of like cancel culture which is which is weird it's a weird thing isn't it um and cancel culture is an understanding like we've we've given agency over the discourse who is virtuous enough to speak in the discourse. And I want to say here that like, I think that's pretty much mostly good. Right. Um, and all these critiques of cancel culture, I mean the letter, God, what a clusterfuck. Um, but all the critiques of cancel culture that are reactionary and like free speech, blah, blah, blah. They just want to be able to misgender people and commit acts of, um, linguistic violence and, material violence too 
if you will, um, against uh, people. Um, and they should be shamed because they don't deserve to be respected by um, what I would consider to be uh, a left wing, a left center political movement that um, has specific hard values that it wants to, that is decided again with its agency to hold up. And I agree with them on that, that people who misgender people or who are TERFs or who are racist in a way that is, um, it, it like who are racist, um, not to say that racism is can be summed up in some sort of internal thought process, you know, in the sense we are all participating in racism. Um, and, and when I say we here, I mean in the sense that participating on both sides, which is not to say that with agency, right? Black people are not participating as agents of racism. They are participating as in, in a society that oppresses them through racist logics. Um, and what I want to then articulate here, though, is the way soul here is being implied, like the the reactionaries who talk about soul and like cancellation and damnation here are trying to think of, oh, you're canceled, you are damned, right? You are a sinner who is now outside of the production process of cultural process of equity. And then there are people who are more reactionary and be like, well, cancel culture is bad because it severs people from their employment. And I think that's true that I think employment should be a right, just like healthcare should be a right. And that if you say terrible things, um, society shouldn't let you die and society and you should have be able to be employed under a job guaranteed program but that doesn't mean there aren't caveats to that right like you can't work in a public job guaranteed program and be a nazi who is constantly uh discriminating and oppressing co-workers and customers who are not you know and i say customers here that's a terrible word because that reifies capitalist structures and but essentially participants in said structures of employment or like if it's a library the people who come into the library um you can't you can't be a nazi and and do that work because the goal of the work is and it uh intrinsically and in antithetical relation to being a Nazi. So that doesn't mean that you, that the, this sort of cancellation and damnation in my conception, I think the MMT conception with the job guarantee afforded by infinite inclusion means that you just get a free pass to do whatever you want. No, it's the messy process of articulating what is allowed and what isn't allowed. But that doesn't mean, but again, again, there is a floor. People don't starve. People have a safe place to live. Um, and this is the 
problematic as well of of um abolitionism abolitionism too which is to say that um you know the question that you know on a recent episode of chapel trap house which is fucking god awful um that they were defending cops and taibi doing matt taibi doing his reactionary dumb idiocy um they're like well where are we going to put the rapists right which is a total reification of the system that's an imagination that you you abolish prisons and you don't do anything right you don't provide alternative ways of mediating acts and activities and so what i want to suggest here with soul is that public money as an infinite locus of being and affordance of being and our own being and flourishing and inclusion ontological inclusion is a ground for really politically reckoning with what damnation implies and so damnation is not total right which is to say there are spheres of what we've like socially constructed and imagined to be forbidden acts that are harmful and you know from something like uh theft for example right society has decided that that's illegal um but we all sort of intrinsically understand that if you steal something um you shouldn't go to jail i mean i fundamentally believe that um i'm sure not everyone believes that but that doesn't mean that nothing should happen either now again if you steal some like also stealing is can be a, a, a critical practice too and i i affirm that and um i uh don't at all participate in that critical practice ever at all and so what i'm trying to articulate here with soul is that even in being cast off to the depths of rehabilitation i think the public money mmt framework allows for forms of rehabilitation as an ongoing process that are never complete. And we all sort of understand this in ourselves. If you've ever gone through trauma, um, you know that you are never fixed, right? It's ongoing processes of rehabilitation and coping and remediation and, and the such. Um, and so thinking with damnation both as in the sense of victim of, of something and also damnation in the sense of um, a process of being excised, ostracized from a community for one's actions. These things are not ontological possibilities, really, right? You can hang a murderer, but he he or she or they are not gone they have not been ostracized which means that he or she or they 
are still variously as memory, as legacy, as as mark of action, as historical moment, refracted in this ongoing political reproduction of society and history. And this is sort of Benjaminian in a sense, I suppose. But, but all downstream, if you will, from the process of reproducing a society that at once hung a murderer for said murder through infrastructural mechanisms and affordances of agency, etc. Um, and so this is a bit of a mosaic of a, of a section here. But what I want to suggest is that our souls are intrinsic to this process of reproduction end of history, end of futurity, and that the meaning of soul is one in which we must all continually reflect as a process of creation of new modes of relation and reflection. And so I realized that's a, that's a whole thing. But um, that's where soul fits in to this schema. And like all, like all schemas, it's never perfect. I think soul might be one that fits in the least out of all of these. Um, but again, it's still included even though it fits in the least. But that doesn't mean we have to include every schema, everything in every schema. You have to pick your perspectival spot and have it stand in relationally for other logics imperfect as everything is and so before we start on time i am going to take a sip of water because we're coming up on almost two hours and uh my throat is parched all right so now, time. We talked about this a little bit. We've talked about this on episode six of Superstructure um, as well. But time is sort of crucial. We don't have enough time, right? Time is imagined as the most scarce commodity. Um, and time is precious. It's beautiful. It's fleeting. It's it's variable it's um bound with past present and future in this sense from a heideggerian sense it's ecstatic it's an ecstatic time of past present and future um all bound in this circle um and so time is in the marxian sense socially necessary labor time right time is value in some sense right we measure value through time often um and when we say we want to do something there's time horizons we can't mass produce pineapples for the universal basic pineapple program right now 
But I suppose if we wanted to do a universal basic pineapple program, which, you know, honestly, I think I think this is one of Nathan Tank- Tankus's uh, proposals about sort of a universal food sort of baseline nutritional distributional political program anyway shout out to someone who does not need a shout out who is a, on a rocket ship to fame um like we could do that but we probably don't have enough pineapples right now and so it's a question of physical resources you know human resources and time and so time is very much at the center of an MMT vision of transformation. Now, one of the things that I think gets lost in some conceptions of political economy that are on the left, whether they're Marxian or various variations, is that there is a tendency, I feel like, to reify time. And so we it, 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 things are hard to achieve because they're hard to achieve right now. And there's not a sort of temporal and transformational outlook of virtu- for futurity, excuse me. Um, that understands agency and situates agency in the the process of temporal mediation. And so today we decide tomorrow, yesterday we decided today, and tomorrow we decide the next day, and then the infinite iterations of long-term versus short-term, but not full decisions, right? It's not one person. There's path dependence. There's alterations and transformations and abolitions and destructions and creations. And I invent a new word. And then that becomes part of tomorrow's discourse on Twitter because um, I am popular. I'm just kidding. I'm not popular. Um, And so all this means that time is utterly crucial to essentially all being, but not as finite at all levels of the process. Finite for you and me, relatively speaking. Finite for my roommate's cat, Cleo. Um, But not finite at the level of the whole, the totality. And some, you know reply guy might say well actually if you think about the universe and the sun going out then it's finite and blah 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 and what i would say is when the universe and the sun goes out um we will have still existed and that is crucially important i don't know how it's important fully but It's a problematic, but it's our problematic, right? Knowing about that is our problematic. And relatively speaking, time is precious and abundant, if you will. And so this is the paradox. Um, Precious for individuals, abundant for society itself. And what that means, 
well and then you know it's not without the caveats of like we could kill ourselves and make it not abundant but the horizon of abundance is is on the table um but what this means is is that it's the same schema as about with money right time like money at levels of social mediation is abundant right in the year two AD there was abundant time for humans not for any particular human not really for any particular institution but for the project of social reproduction itself which is a way of saying we're still here as humans um but no individual human is still here and that's sort of how i feel like money functions right in the sense that money is abundant for the government for a society but not for us individually at the level of varying levels of community though there are caveats about complementary currency issuance and accommodation shout out to our uni proposal um though so all of that being said it's crucially important to situate time in reproduction in this way as abundant and you know for better or for worse marx does uh make gestures i'd say to the fact of this temporal and temporalized problematic but agency is not for marx at the level of social agency through the superstructures of law and reproduction itself except through imminent force though there are of course compromises to be made around electoralism these sorts of things but ultimately capital is outside the laws of human agency and this is the problem doesn't mean there's not a way of transforming it for marx but structurally speaking capital is ungraspable right it can't be destroyed except through really its own destruction of itself which it will do at some point um which again where that's a that's a that's a theory of superstructure as outside and not as intrinsic to the process of undergirding material processes not as hegelian ideas or thoughts only though ideas and thoughts are important but as mediating functions of variable analogical agency and so that's a that's an important critique when it comes to time and how we need to rethink relations of time and how we revalue time at the level of the individuals and like we can say right time is precious for individuals at the level of the whole it's variably abundant and relatively abundant which means that individuals need to be afforded more time to do nice things right that's you know we need more leisure that's amazing that's amazing i want to sit you know in the pool that i don't have or on the beach um more because that's nice and i like nice things and i like to feel good and i want to have more time to spend with the people that i love because that's nice and i want to feel good and that time you know (laughs) on the balance sheet 
of time needs to be offset and more time needs to be on the burden of structures of mediating and governing mediation so that individuals don't have to do as much though we still have to participate at some level and i still want there to be libraries open for you know and librarians because i love librarians they're wonderful people um and that implies that we do have to do something and we do have to manage and articulate and reproduce what that something is but we don't have to it doesn't have to be 40 hours a week um or you know even worse far worse than that and more precarious as well and so let's uh let's let the government's deficit be our surplus as it will but when it comes to time and so and now the final infinity infinity stone you're almost there listener if you've listened this far i have to say congratulations on having your brain be as broken as mine um I don't know what your prize is besides feeling bad and good about yourself at the same time, which is the eternal mode. And so here I want to really focus in on mind and what, you know, and we talked about Hegel a little bit before and we can talk about psychoanalysis a little bit, but what I think is crucial here is that in all forms of psychoanalysis that you know a lot a lot of it comes from Hegel as well there's a crucial premise of our mind as a sort of puzzle right i mean i'm not one to really know what i'm feeling at any given time oftentimes it's my heart rate that tells me um and so not everyone is the same we're all analogical but there is a really important way of thinking about mind through the schema of mmt which might seem really odd an odd thing to do and you know what listeners it is extremely weird um But what I want to suggest here is that the imagination of an individual primordial man in nature is one that, you know, has a sort of Edenic understanding of the mind. So like Freud will talk about how there's like a rupture in our minds and, and trauma and, and all these sorts of things is there's a before and there's an after and there's a perfect past and there's a tra- traumatized present and an uncertain future. And again, I'm being, I'm being a little bit slippery here. Um, superstructure is slippery. Sorry, everyone. But, for all intents and purposes, this is not a very slippery point here. Um, the dialectical movement of Geist, of spirit, is premised upon a lack that is evacuated 
with relation in a movement back and forth between subject and object. And so at one point in the relation, uh, the object is sort of exists in and for itself as an object and sort of it's a coherent unity. And then that's evacuated into the subject and the object then exists for the subject and, and is fractured and vanishes. And the subject then is sort of inside in and for itself in a unity and this back and forth is this ping-ponging effect that generates a dialectical energy that motors um history forward and progress forward through spirits relationships with things and thing and spirit as thing and and we could go on um and so the the foundational implication though here is that there's always a lack somewhere there's always something missing. And, you know, perhaps in the Hegelian sense, it's it's a transcendent God, right? We've, we've fallen into a modernity where God, you know, by the time Nietzsche talks about has died, um, and we are left imminent with and for ourselves, right? Für sich would be the German Hegelian term, for itself. Um, and we have to figure out what to do. We're thrown. God has withdrew. Um, that is the clearing that creates the space for our imminent existence. This is like Descartes and Heidegger. Um, and so and our imminent existence is then God's representation in the subject as an extension. But ultimately, by the time we hit 20th century, we're super fucked up and wars happened and were traumatized. And this is not to deny that trauma occurred earlier, of course it did, but the schema by which we manage socially this problem was individualistic, right? One had to overcome their trauma because um, it happened to, to them, excuse me, it happened to them and it was not as nested as one would want into societal structures at the level of itself. But if we're thinking about primordial meaning, linguistic, numerical, inclusion, accounting, debt, credit, and then the infinite capacity to afford at all levels material relations, analogically, not fully and wholly, in an essentialized way, then what we're dealing with here is the fact that our minds are policy variables too. And that becomes very obvious when you think about mental health, right? And, you know, often mental health is seen as ex post, a process of recuperation and remediation. And it is, you know, it is personally been one of the things that has been uh, most helpful for me for understanding and reckoning with past traumas. But there, there's also the, the beforehand, which is actions, like being victim to an act or something that happens to you is some are things that we should prevent as a society. And so 
we should be having, you know, pedagogical programs that teach all sorts of different preventative social values that mitigate harm at all levels. Um, And, you know, the tyranny of the nuclear family that gives full, you know, that imagines it's giving full sovereignty to two parents as to what the full and total structure of raising a child should be, right? It's not like we have this at all because we have schools and schools are social formations and there's all sorts of ways in which we raise children societally. And um, and so, you know, I shout out to someone like Sophie Lewis who um, is working and thinking in this area around abolishing familial structures and um sophie has a book called full surrogacy now which is interesting on these sorts of things i can't say i agree with every framing but um these are the sorts of things that we need to be talking about and asking which is to say that protecting children right another way of putting it uh mitigating harm against adults young adults uh the elderly middle-aged everyone you know also animals and nature you know my mind is maybe a hard word to think with here but you know i i do think you know plants at some level like exhibit some functioning of you know thinking again this is all metaphorical and analogical and that is not in any way um to to denigrate or to suggest that it's less valuable in some some way i mean it, it could very well be that human thoughts are more valuable than plant thoughts that is something that is up for debate. Um, but what then that means is that this perceived lack in our minds, the loss of God, and then our re- relational vulnerability is an abandonment, right? Our minds were and are abandoned by society. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we should have totalizing propaganda and we shouldn't encourage forms of freer thinking, right? But that to not take responsibility for epistemology and for mental health, ex ante and ex post, is itself producing the lack whereby Hegel's understanding of dialectical, the dialectical motor of history as spirit, it is produced, which grammatically that sentence, so I will rephrase. We need a sort of mind guarantee, (laughs) if you will. Again, uh, not exactly the correct wording or what I would suggest here, but just a sense like we need policy and social relationality that that incurs the debt of our social epistemology at the level of both like content and knowledge and also experience and harm mitigation and remediation and health and um, all sorts of different ways of, of interacting. And when you, when you do that, it actually 
when you articulate that. You don't have a mind on its own in the world encountering objects. And this is crucial. Because if you don't have a mind on its own, then the dialectical motor is itself rendered not a motor, a progression of history, but a, a transformable process, right? Like we can, we don't have to mitigate every relation through force, which is, of course, the universal medium of the dialectic. And so because we don't have to mitigate everything through force, the mediation itself is not univocal. It's partial. It's analog, right? It's analogical. And so in that way, we're not dealing with thesis, antithesis, synthesis, but rather thesis, also thesis, another thesis, and then a sort of surplus coincidence of these theses that are not in complete diametric conflict, that are not either completely same. And that is a process of, of deciding what society wants to do with the world. And it's inextricable from thoughts and mind and knowledge and ideas and how we see the world, which comes back to that reality question that we had there. And so that, I think, is one of the more crucial ways of thinking about how we can societally transform from what we call capitalism and race, racist racial capitalism and deal with this legacy of genocide and trauma that not all of us um, are victim to this in the same way, but that we are all necessarily bound up in and all necessarily, in my opinion, variously culturally traumatized by, which is not to say that we are all in the same power position here either, but that's to say that... Um, both one's both oneself and one's abuser um, has ne ne necessarily internalized certain forms of um, capitalism and, and and you know in this instance one could talk about patriarchy as well um, which is not a which is neither an agency defying statement that says that those who committed said abuses are, are are completely their agency is rendered completely mute nor is it a com a complete um articulation of total agency whereby everyone is fully and 100 percent univocally responsible for um what happens to them or the structures of thinking that condition what they do um but right and it's it, crucially with that said um, transitioning then to what we could call a post-capitalist world or a fully uh, full articulation of primordial debt and obligation and dependence, 
um, and not longer striving for individuated autonomy or associational sort of island-based subsistence um, is a world in which we need to transform and condition the process for healing, but again, not healing necessarily fully, but coping with the traumas of the world and the past world. And then, of course, ongoing traumas of of existing that will inevitably occur um, that we are constantly aiming to mitigate against. And so that means that, you know, with the Green New Deal, we need a transfer. We need, and that's why we need, for example, Medicare all in a Green New Deal, right? That's another crucial link because we have to transform all aspects of society if we are going to transform any aspect of society. And that is crucial to understanding the all-at-once-ness of what money implies and the infinity sign that this sort of unit of accounting is based upon. Infinite inclusion, infinite responsibility, infinite affordance of infinite diversity. And so... With that, I have completed now the processes of thinking through this schematic. And I guess I want to leave us and leave this conversation with um, a sort of reflection on where we are in the MMT moment and where superstructure sees itself. And I don't speak for Will Foley here, of course not. Um, this is very much an experimental thing. I honestly think we do our best work together. And I mean that um, because I have a tendency to get a little bit lost in my thoughts. As you may have seen from me talking to you for over two hours straight, um, it, it runs and runs and runs and runs and runs. My That brain of mine. Um, and... So, all things considered, right? I see, and I think we see superstructure as an important process in leaving a sort of pedagogical vision of MMT that is about meticulous teaching behind, which is not to say that meticulous teaching is not freaking crucial still and like, People still need to read Stephanie Kelton's book and people still need to read the meticulous teachings of Rowan Gray and Nathan Tankis and of Emma Katerin and all of these people who are working variously within the MMT inflected left movement. Um, And, you know, these are the sorts of people we really want to highlight. We've highlighted in the Money on the Left podcast and really gone through and asked them to teach our audience And we try and frame that teaching in a very particular way as to advance forward and make space for more radical thinking along the framing and terms of MMT. And so, but this podcast is decidedly not that. And you may have noticed we throw you in the deep end here because we're not aiming to meticulously teach. What we want is our listeners to try to form a sort of mimetic relationship 
to our process. And so I've tried to really talk through so many different ways of getting at what this process implies and ways of thinking that this process implies in this episode and to sort of show you, like, I feel like this is, you know, a yoga video on YouTube where I'm like doing a downward dog and like climbing this mountain uh, and climbing the cascade and climbing back down and signaling where I'm doing what for, for our listeners to be able to internalize the vision that we are offering. Of course, this is all if you think that this is a useful vision, a useful method um, that rejects rote-based material thinking as the causal vehicle for social transformation fully, right? In the sense that it is a, it is a crucial player in this analogy of transformation, right? In this analogical composition of a social process of transformation. But it is one that has been essentialized and fetishized. And so in performing that, we hope, you know, obviously you learn, you, you probably will still learn things because that's a part of this too. But ultimately, superstructure is about, is, is a way of thinking, which again, talk about lofty bullshit, right? This is, you know, I, I shudder at even saying this, but one of the, one of the risks we're taking is being lofty and being confident and being new and trying to be new in a way that opens up the horizon of thinking and and acting and then you know hopefully those can be those are synthesized in a praxis um that can carry forward parts of the left that are interested in operating in the wake of and thinking and trying to attain power in the wake of the coronavirus in the wake of the loss of Bernie and the vacuum that Bernie's loss has left behind. And so us ultimately, you know, our first episode is called critique after Bernie. We want our mode of thinking to fill that vacuum. And, you know, that is what Jacobin wanted too in the wake of Obama and um, and they did for better or definitely also for worse. Um, and so left discourse is up for grabs and superstructure is trying to permeate <laughs> that space as it already always already was permeated by the superstructure but to insert that actualizing agency that Will and I are both performing at the level of a pedagogical, artistic, internet enterprise. And with that, listeners, I want to thank you for listening, for those of you who made it this long, and um, I'm sure you'll hear from me soon.
Yeah. Uh-huh. 